Hello, and welcome to the Slice of Wine podcast, the podcast that gives you snippets of the people, places, and innovations behind the barrel. I'm your host, Amy Cronin, and today I'm speaking with the inimitable France Posner, the Eastern Division man- Sales Manager for Opus One. France, it's wonderful to have you on. This is a ball. Thank you, Amy. I've known you such a long time, and this is such a wonderful side to you I didn't know about. Thank you for inviting me. <laughs> My pleasure. I'm so excited to have you on. So um, France has been with Opus One for quite some time. Um, and I'd love to hear a little more about, first of I think I'd love for the audience to hear a little more about Opus One. I'm sure a lot of us know it, but what makes it so special? What makes it so unique? And um, tell us a little oh, bit. It, it is a very unique um, brand in the wine business because it's remained very true to its um, its lineage. It's, it's the founders, Mr. Mandavi and the Baron Philippe de Rothschild, who, you know, to, to boil it down very quickly, they shook hands in 1978 and decided they wanted to make a wine that would someday belong in the company of the finest wines of the world. And, um, and they met in Bordeaux. They, um, they decided on how they were gonna do this, that this, this brand was gonna be made in Napa Valley. It was gonna be made with the recipe of Mouton Rothschild. Mr. Madavi said, well, if we're gonna really do this, then I'm going to sell my 40 finest acres that I have from the Tokelon Vineyard, which is regarded as one of the five top vineyards in the world. And, um, and so they, off they went. They uh, ended up purchasing 80 acres across the street where the winery now is, uh, was built in 1991. Mm-hmm. Um, but the first wines came out in, um, believe it or not, in 1984. And it was, it was an amazing concept at the time because they came out at $50 a bottle. It was a giant deal for the Rothschilds to be involved with an American wine. Everybody wanted to see it. I myself was working at a tiny little winery on Long Island. And I remember like counting down the days until Opus One was going to show up in its wooden box at my local wine shop. So I'd go gawk at it and, and uh, <laughs> get all excited about the fact that that really not justified because California didn't need any justification from the French to say that they were making great wines. They were making great wines, but this was an awesome partnership and a validation. And Mr. Mandavi and the Baron were just huge um, friends right off the bat. They checked their egos at the door and they were, um, really defined by one action, which was to make this great wine. And um, they they made, to this day, all they make is Opus One. Um, many other brands go off and they have lots of other, you know, make a lot of white yeah. wines, they make a, this uh, reserve and that reserve and capture different segments of the market. So if you're not a, a $400 bottle of wine person, well, let's catch it at the $20 level. So right. you know, wineries love to do that. And this was, uh, this has always been true to what Opus One is. Today, it's sold in a hundred countries. And it is indeed, um, it is indeed regarded as one of the top wines in the world during COVID and and for the years previous to that on the Wine Searcher uh, app, they are number seven of the most searched out wines in the world. And um, I feel like I'm leaving out a whole bunch of fun stuff about the Baron and and Mr. Madavi, but they truly both passed away now. and, And the Baron's daughter was a part of it for such a long time. She was amazing. But um, the only offspring that they've had is in order to make a great wine, a Grand Vin, you have to make a second wine. And that's made up of the lots that you take away from the Grand Vin to make it the best that it can possibly be. And every first growth does that. And so um, Opus, uh, in following on lines of first growth status, um, has done the same thing. So we have Overture. But those grapes were grown to go into Opus, technically. Right, right. So you, there's, I mean, there's one wine and there's basically, there's Opus and there's Overture. And that's and and that and that's it now so you just said so in 1984 you were working in you know 
Long Island and waiting for the you know opus to come out so you could see it. You joined in 1988. So there's like this four year period, you're like stocking the wine. <laughs> <laughs> no, actually I was stalking all the Robert Mondavi people because every time I met a Robert Mondavi uh, salesperson, uh, whether they're just a street salesperson or a manager um, at different tasting events, I was always extremely impressed by their, um, both their uh, individuality because every one of them was, they weren't a cookie cutter company. Yeah. Every one of them was very bright, very cool. Um, they had, they really had their stuff together and they had a, uh, a right to be in the wine industry. There were as many women as there were men um, at the time, which was amazing. amazing. And, um, and every time I met one, you know, I'd shake their hand going in my head going, I'm going to be you one day. This is where I want to be working. I want to work for Robert Davi Winery. So I had sent my, my resume to Robert Davi, but at the time they were hiring the Opus One job and I was in the right place, the right time. And, and uh, I was very, very, very lucky. So were you working in the wine industry? What, how did you get started in the wine industry and end up at Opus eventually? At a college, I worked for a small winery in uh, East End of Long Island called the Bridgehampton Winery. And uh, I worked, my first job in the wine industry was in Long Island. Where, which one? Schneider Vineyards up in Riverhead. Yeah, yeah, I remember Schneider. Yeah. Um, met, um, uh, Bridgehampton was the second, Hargrave was the first, as you know. Mm -hmm. Bridgehampton was the second, then there was Lens, and then the rest was, yeah. there's now 33 wineries. Crazy. Hard to believe. And back then they were pretty acidic and they didn't have as much <laughs> as much character as they have today. And it was not an easy sell. And there wasn't that farm to table attitude that there is today. And uh, I remember when the Four Seasons restaurant um, wanted to take 20 cases of Bridgehampton Chardonnay. And I remember like, I thought I died and gone to heaven. That was that was the biggest sale I knew I was gonna ever have. And <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it was amazing. It was amazing. But the, um, the idea of Opus was, you know, like, again, it was about working for Ramadavi and I'd had it, you know, making very little money at Bridgehampton. I wanted more, I needed more. So I flew myself out to California, interviewed with anybody that would see me, ended up in front of the manager at um, Ramadavi. Um, and like I said, there was, there was a man named Stu Harrison, who I just spoke to last week, actually. And uh, Stu was looking for somebody to aid him in sales. And he, there was really only, other than the cellar people, of which the cellar was really Robert Dobby folks, but there was a lot of vineyard people. Um, that was it. The sales part was the first aspect of Opus. So it sounds to me like, so, I mean, this is what you, working with Opus, you've been doing this for so long. It's like the dream job, right? So it is. And I didn't, I left, I left up something out. So I went to, I, and I, it's because my head's going too fast. I did have two years with North American Wine Company, which is where I went for Bridgehampton. It was a marketing company. It taught me how to travel, how to handle all the different states, yeah. lots of brands that were super hard to sell at the time. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and it gave me great um, ability to learn a lot on my feet because um, I didn't even know what the word FOB meant, freight on board. I mean, I was, yeah. I was just so green, and, um, but very, very anxious to be a sponge and soak up everything I could. Yeah. No, but it sounds to me like, you know, you said you were in the right place at the right time, but you made yourself in the right place at the right time. Is You know, I'd like to say that because I also haven't changed. After 33 years with Opus yeah. One, I haven't moved because the grass is not greener anywhere else. And I feel very blessed and very honored to work for this company. And I know that sounds kind of silly in today's, you know, young people today take a job to three years and they move on to another job and another job and they climb the ladder by bouncing from um, from industry to industry or from uh, company to company trying yep. to make money but there's none of that allegiance and none of that personality and that and that sense of ownership 
And I feel, you know, there's a, there's a stewardship here that I, I you know, I'm, I'm lucky enough to be there for the years that I am and then pass it on to somebody else and hopefully, you know, better than it was when you came, which that's pretty easy because there was no one before I came. <laughs> <laughs> so how would you say the industry has changed since you, since you started here? Well, there were no computers when I started, so everything was done by hand. And then when I had to add up all of the cases that were in each market and who was the biggest account, it was a, a pencil and a very large eraser and lots of eraser um, garbage all over my desk. Thank God for spreadsheets and Excel now. But um, in addition to that, there was, oh, I remember buying my first computer on my own with my own money. I walked into an Apple store and bought a $4,000 Apple laptop. Oh, my and God. My my boss at the time was like, what the heck are you doing that for? I said, because I just believe this is going to be like what I'm going to need to continue to monitor all the allocations and everything else. He's like, oh, that'll never last. <laughs> <laughs> You'll be going back to paper and pencil in no time. Yeah, I, I think he wanted to go back to a rock and a chisel um, and, and, an and an abacus. But um, he was, he, he laughs about that all the time. We have a lot of uh, jokes about things like that, but the other thing was there were no women. There was absolutely no women in the industry at all. And um, I remember going around to meet all my wholesalers and it was always men, 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 which I had, I had no problem being around because, you know, you just, as long as you stood up for yourself and you had confidence, just like you, Amy, you know, to be in a room full of a hundred men at a sales meeting, that was great. Um, but then I went, I found myself in front of a small wholesaler in North Carolina and there were five female sales uh, people and a, and a female sales manager. And I was gawking at them like I had never in my life seen anything so freakish. And as it, as it turns out years later, I ran into one of them and she said, we were gawking at you because we had never seen a female supplier before. So both of us having that moment of truth, like it can be done, you know, it, we still are hard pressed to see a lot of female CEOs and people breaking the glass ceiling in the wine industry, which is sad, but there's wonderful people out there um, that have started the, the uh, women of the, of the vine and spirit. Yep. And, and they are, they're incredible. Uh, Deborah is incredible, the woman who started. But anyway, it's, yeah. um, it's nice to see the progress we've made. There's, there's a lot of progress in the industry. I mean, I remember, you know, even when, you know, when I was at Martinetti companies and we were working together, there were very few female sales reps when I first started. And now it's, you know, Women are, you know, are, are everywhere throughout the, the, this industry. It's really, um, it's really made some big changes, but you're right. You know, there's still some, there's still some glass ceilings that need to be broken. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. And I'm, I'm happy to be part of that. The other day I had, it was such a compliment. I was um, seeking to, to work with a, a pretty big name restaurant in New York city. I took a whole bunch of rest, uh, uh, hoteliers there for dinner and, um, and I had, written to the female psalm that was there and she wrote back and then when she came to the table i said it's so nice to meet you and she goes i googled you she goes you're a badass you've been in the industry for a long <laughs> time and she looked at me like you know that's so cool i'm so happy to see someone who's stuck around and it just i was like huh i feel so better <laughs> i'm just really glad those search words of badass are working on my google ads <laughs> it's funny because i have um I started something before COVID. I started something um, with a female from my uh, wholesaler in New York. We call it the, the Badass Gals Who Lunch. And I only invite female, and it came from Martinetti when they did that, that female, all female yeah. uh, group. And I sat on the panel of that. And, um, and this is, you know, 
eight solid female psalms from New York City, which now, you know, we could do lunches every day and not hit all of them. Right, right, totally. So I'm, I'm already planning for October to get our next one post-COVID now to put a bunch of fabulous women together and get a nice um, private dining room somewhere. And, and it's amazing how you sit down and this doesn't happen when I invite men to sit around the table. Everybody has to be very, you know, egotistical and show off in front of each other. With women, they all sit down and it's instantaneous communication and connection. And everybody, by the time you get up and leave, everybody is talking like we've been together for years. It's, it's really- It's great. Yeah. It's great. Um, I actually, so when I, when I was living in New York City, I had a group that uh, called, we were called Divas Who Dine. <laughs> I love and it was that. the same sort of thing, but it, you know, it was across di uh, many different industries. And it was definitely like, you know, there are networking events and then there are networking events for women, by women. And it's just lights out different. I mean, like we would go there, you would, everybody, you would make a connection with everyone and, you know, there'd be action items afterwards and, you know, get friendships done, get business done. Let's do this and have a glass of wine. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. It's, it's wonderful. And it's a great way to do business. I, I highly advocate it. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, in the, you know, with your experiences in this industry, do you have any sort of like wonderful, like favorite lessons that you've learned or, uh, that other women might, um, benefit from, uh, in your experience? You know, I had, a um, I've had several bosses through the years and, um, and we had a new boss that was starting out. And, and he was a real uh, young, very highly creative, smart, smart guy. And I had never had this happen to me with any person in the entire winery ever, where I just felt like he does not like me. From the moment we met, he does not like me. The way he'd look at me, if I, if I jumped in and had a comment, he like, got very upset. I could see the vein on his forehead start to pulse. I mean, I, I'm like, I've got six months and he's going to fire me. And I, I was in such... Um, distressed over this because I, I didn't know what I'd done first and foremost I was just being mm -hmm. myself and I'd always been regarded with tremendous respect in the industry and I work I work harder than anybody I mean I, I work 150 percent every single day despite the fact that I've been there so long which is why people have had respect so I was lost I couldn't figure it out and it was getting worse and worse and worse and I just could see the target on my back getting bigger and bigger and we were all at a, a June gathering the whole sales department and he was happened to be sitting next to me. He was a very likable guy. Don't get me wrong. I mean, he, yeah. was, he was kind and I said, bright. And I was learning a lot from him, but I just, there was no connection whatsoever. And we're sitting at dinner and, uh, and he said something about, believe it or not, and, and I can't even remember the context of it, but he said something about uh, diarrhea. <laughs> I said, <laughs> after a glass of wine, I turned to him. I said, do not talk about that around me. I said, you need diarrhea for the past six months because I thought I got nothing to lose, right? He looks at me, he looks at me with these big wide eyes and he physically turned his whole body. I turned my body and he goes, let's talk. He said, my grandmother would never let me um, not work out a situation if it was that big, which I can clearly see with you. And he, yeah. he's one of those guys that's had a lot, a lot, a lot of therapy through the years and he knows how to start <laughs> melt it all down. It was because um, he would say something, I would say something, but we weren't listening to each other. And he was hearing something that I wasn't saying. And I was hearing something he wasn't saying. And we both spit it all out. It was like, oh my God, I had no idea. He thought I was trying to say, it was part of my New York um, aggressive attitude, which he wasn't mm -hmm. used to. And, um, and it, it was amazing. We ended up hugging it out at the end. 
And, um, and from that point on, and to this day, um, he still says, I love you at the end of a conversation. He calls me for advice. We have the most wonderful relationship. But I got home that night and I have a, a rock star daughter who is now 27. And I remember calling her right away and she's, she's in social media. I remember calling her right away and saying, honey, don't ever think that, that it's the end of something. I said, there's always opportunity for you to reopen up a conversation and find the best that it can be in there because I'm shocked at what just happened. I had no idea that I could be so, so lucky to have this great boss. And he went on to be probably the best boss I've ever had. He's a pretty damn cool guy. I mean, he's, he's wow. really smart, very smart. He's now gone on to another brand and, um, and I hope I can always stay in touch with him because he's just such a good guy. That's awesome. That's amazing. It's, you know, you think you're communicating until you communicate. Yeah. <laughs> and then you're like, wait a minute, until that's you correct. connect. That's correct. Um, that's, uh, yeah, that, I think that's a lesson people can take in any industry, to be honest. Like, you never know. You, you never know if there's that other opportunity and you got to just talk it through. Don't be afraid to bring it up. You're right. You're right. So you were, we, so, um, we, uh, sorry, I'm stumbling, but um, Opus One is an allocated wine, right? It's it, not everybody can get it. I mean, not every mm -hmm. consumer can get it and not every store and every restaurant can get it. So managing the brand is a lot different than most brands out there. You know, like the Bridgehampton Winery psyched to get 20 cases at Four Seasons. Opus One's like a new, 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 new. Yeah, so, that's true. It's very yeah. true. We we have to manage every aspect of our brand, uh, and we have to do it yeah. in a legal manner. So um, some states you can't do that, like like New York, where the state mm -hmm. authority steps in. Um, other states you can allocate. So it's and it can be different by county to county. In some states, like Maryland, um, you know, there's there's a lot of rules and regulations in the alcohol and spirits uh, business. So yes, we allocate, but it's to try to keep. Um, Unlike a lot of big brands, Cabernet brands, which are, would prefer to be 80 or 90% on-premise, meaning restaurant only, mm -hmm. um, we, we know where our bread is buttered and we like to be 50% off-premise, which means retail. So we like to know that collectors are putting our wine in their cellar, in their wine cellars, and they're going to keep them for a lot of years because a bottle of Opus will last 40 years in a cellar, if not more, because we just we're about to put out our 40th anniversary vintage, the um, 2018 vintage, which is, by the way, I mean, it's profound. It is, 18 vintage is utterly, I say it every year, but I, I don't know how Michael Salachi, our winemaker, is able to do what he does because every year the wine is truly better. And with the way that it ages, I mean, you, you just have this line of incredible wines, but 18 from California in general, is phenomenal, followed by 19, also phenomenal. Two, I mean, Mother Nature said, here are perfect grapes. <laughs> here you go, everyone. And if you screw it up, you're a bad winemaker because yeah. you know you can make some really phenomenal wine with this. So like anything, you have to start with you know great ingredients right. to have something turn out uh, even better. And um, where was I going with that one? Just to say that, the, I mean, the vintage is, is phenomenal. I think I, I digressed and went off on that because I'm so excited about the, 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 the two that 2018 vintage is coming out this year is October 1st. October. In three Very weeks, soon. in three weeks, it's coming out, and um, and then our our second wine overture also the um, it's a little it's actually a multi vintage so it's a little bit of seventeen and a lot of eighteen and that's coming out side by side with Opus and it will be October first in a hundred countries. Our negotiants have already accepted all of theirs, 
Um, the managers, myself and my five colleagues uh, domestically are busy. Uh, we've already allocated everything. Now we're busy getting all the invitations out to everybody to make sure that they sign on the dotted line and get their submission into, it's not literally signed, it's a QR code to say that they want it. It's magical, and, uh, it's all digital now and not on paper. <laughs> oh, and everybody, everybody, the writers are all getting uh, bottles somehow and, and um, they're, or they've been to the winery and they're tasting it with Michael. So the critics have been unbelievably generous with their praise. And it's fun when you put out a wine like this. And I always say, it's like, it's like if you're a parent and I certainly know you're a parent. Yeah. Um, and when you coddle and love that child before they go off to school and they're all yours and they're with you all day and it's just a wonderful thing, you know? And then all of a sudden one day it comes and you're sending them off to school, you put them on the yellow school bus and off they go. And that's the way I feel with a new vintage every time. It's like, <laughs> off it goes to be seen by the rest of the world. Oh my God, I hope everybody loves it the way I did. I hope you end up in a happy cellar. <laughs> I hope they treat you well. It's temperature controlled. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think that's a really important thing for people to know, though, like, you know, Opus One, it's, you know, a, a lot of brands are allocated and they're mostly allocated to on premise. But Opus One is a, is a wine for the, your seller. It's a wine for the seller. It's a wine that. for uh, restaurants. It is a wine for um, for people to drink today because it's a very highly drinkable wine. Mm -hmm. um, the time of release it's got great balance you know because we just had some together <laughs> and um and it is a wine which you can put down and it's only going to get better and better the first year when i get when i have a new opus one and my samples have come in it's usually like june july um and i start wrapping my head around this new vintage because that's the only thing i'm going to be tasting and talking about for the following year so i start making different kinds of foods in the kitchen and tasting it and thinking and you know wrapping my head like i said completely around this new vintage because every vintage of opus is made to reflect the, the vintage that it came from and all the aspects that mother nature has thrown us, yeah, uh, yeah. whether it's heat or coolness or rain or not, or whatever it is, no rain in California right now, but, um, and then it's also about the place that it comes from, which is Oakville, California. And Oakville is a tiny little sub appellation of Napa. It's four uh, miles by two miles, it's tiny, but it's known for a lot of accolades that make that appellation very special to the growth of Cabernet Sauvignon vines. Uh, mm -hmm. Our root systems are super deep. The drought has helped that happen to happen because the yep. root systems have had to go way down to, to get water to yep. bring up. And uh, it's it's pretty astounding. We pick a little bit earlier than everybody else does because we want that freshness and that acidity. Balance is always there. It's gorgeous. So back to your allocation. Yes, every bottle that's coming out is allocated. Um, nearly everybody who's allocated will take it. There's always those people who yep. don't have the money or they've closed or COVID's been you know desperate situation for them. Um, it, you know, I, we anticipate that it's going to be the most rapid sale we've ever seen. Well, so on that note, thank you so much for joining me uh, and, and the Slice of Wine podcast. I hope the world takes great care of this 2018 vintage that's going, that's getting on the big yellow bus to, <laughs> um, to, you know, to their restaurants and their cellars and their glasses this fall. Thank you, uh, thank you, thank you, thank you. It's been a pleasure. Pleasure for me too. I look forward to having you on uh, again and again. There are thank a lot you. of stories to go through. And uh, stay tuned everyone for the next episode. Bye honey. Bye.